0: this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce the man sitting in front of me. It is legendary Canadian musician, Mr. Murray McLaughlin. Murray, thank you so much for coming in.
1: That's my great pleasure. Nice talking to you.
0: I'm glad to come in today. I've known your songs forever. We were talking before we uh, got rolling here, and uh, I've grown up with them. My favorite thing about you, I think, is that you are like the epitome of the classic Canadian troubadour. You've played every hall across Canada during your five decades of your career, and I still do it. So you still play. We were just talking about that. You still play with lunch at Allen's. Is that right? I do concerts uh, myself, yeah, quite a number of them, and I also
1: play with Lunch at Allen's as a band. So we're kind of separate entities. Mm-hmm. Everyone in Lunch at Allen's has their own career. Um, you know, Mark has become really burning a great reputation as a uh, quite an exciting, you know, and inventive jazz artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian, of course, is. You know, from the boomers on, Ian is still like churning out pop songs, doing movie soundtracks. Yeah. And, C- and Cynthia, Cindy, mm-hmm. tours with a number of different uh, young ladies, including Quartet, which is uh, uh, Sylvia Tyson uh, and Cindy and a, and a couple of other great ladies that do concerts as well.
0: Yeah. And you're saying you're at uh, Laurentian University.
1: We've played there on a number of occasions. I think actually that's... That was recently on the schedule for Lunch at Allen's. Yeah, we toured, mm-hmm. we did Lunch at Allen's uh, a concert there, I think last fall.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you'll be back, I'm sure. Um, we have a habit of going where we're invited. <laughs> <laughs> I might head up there and catch you up there. Now, Murray, you are uh, part of a very special cause that uh, particularly interests me as a music fan. It's called Room 217 Foundation. And uh, it's a charity that uses music to improve the quality of life of complex care Canadians. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Absolutely.
1: It's a, a passion of mine. for It's been for some time. Um, just a brief history. Uh, some years ago, I was on a radio show with a guy named Ian Brown. He had a book show okay. on CBC Radio. And you were given books to review, and the book I was given to review was by Oliver Sacks. It was called Music Ophelia. Oliver Sacks is the guy who wrote the book Awakenings that was made into the movie with Robin Williams, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And it was just one of the most mind-blowing books I I ever read. And one of the the things that came out of Oliver Sacks' work is that music is stored in an area of the brain which is not – the prefrontal cortex in other words the lyrics and melodies associated with music can actually lead back to a place in time or a memory or sometimes even in the case of brain injury back to acquiring speech again through the use of music and lyrics mm-hmm. so this really flipped me out okay so one day i was doing a it was a combination performance and dissertation on creativity and how music affects your life emotionally. I was doing it at the recital hall at the U of T okay. at the invitation of a bunch of medical professionals. And after the, the thing was, was done, this nice lady named Bev Foster came up and explained to me what Room 217 was all about and what I'd like to come on the advisory board. And she was so good. Nailing the spiel, yeah. that I said, well, why don't I just come on your board? You know, I've been on boards for seventeen years. I know how to read a profit and loss statement. It's it's going to be fine. Yeah. She said, "My God, sure." And then I kind of really deep dived into what Room Two Seventeen was all about, and it's really quite fascinating. Um, Room Two Seventeen actually makes musical products, ah. specifically tailored for different circumstances. It started out and. Where the name came from, by the way, it's the room in the hospital, the number of the room in the hospital where Bev Foster's father passed away. Oh, And at the time he passed away, the experience of dying in a hospital was just about as bad as people can imagine it is. Mm-hmm. So part of the initiative with using music in end-of-life care situations was to create an environment where we could make, hopefully, at least help make dying as natural and beautiful a process as now they've made being born. I love that. You know, the whole birthing experiences has changed and you know, the idea is let's take the end of life out of the dark and scary place Mm -hmm. and the medicalized place that isn't accepted as being a natural part of life. So that's how it kind of started. Wow. Using music to, to break the ice for instance, when um, oftentimes a person has a terminal illness You get members of the family or a spouse who will not accept that. They Mm -hmm. want to lift up the hood and fix it, talk about the new therapy that's just around the corner. Mm. Meanwhile, a person that's passing away wants to deal with the issues in their life. It's an important transition. They want to go without having any baggage left over, and it impedes that process. Sometimes music can help to bridge those gaps and start the process of communication. Sometimes a person who's passing away is just so tired they don't want to talk they mm-hmm. don't want to engage, and music can fill that that wonderful space mm-hmm. of just finding peace yeah and then when when it got really exciting was uh, room two seventeen developed a program called Pathways, which was a singing program, a group singing program that literally eased. The suffering of people who with various forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. When people sing together, if, especially if it's a song that was specifically important to them or is rooted in their memory at a certain time in their life, it mitigates that terrible fear of loss of self. Because, I mean, who are you but your memories, yeah. your accumulated memories? So a song, if it centers you back, even at, at a place in time that was in the past – it's comforting because it gives you back your your sense of self. Yes. So the added bonus is that when people sing together using this program, it also releases oxytocin, which is the birthing bonding chemical. Mm. It's a very feel good kind of natural thing that the brain releases when when you do that. I know this from performing with people on stage. You always feel better after you sing. Yeah. So where this programs pathways and what the concert is really all about, Voices That Care, is to put this program into adult daycare centers where there is no budget and there are no programs. Okay. These are places where for you know, half a day you park your loved ones so you can get some shopping done or just get some relief from the stresses of, of caregiving. Mm-hmm. Um, quite Low budget places and the staff are overwhelmed and overworked. And in the places where we've gotten this particular program, the staff have just loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. So that's what, that's what 217 is on about. It has a wide range of, of activities, including training people to use these products and training people to, for appropriate use of these things in varying circumstances. So we have seminars, webinars, all kinds of stuff like that.
0: Whoa. It's really, a, it's pretty cool. I think it's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, no, I really do. I'm, I'm very interested in that. Obviously, music is my platform, and, and music has so many different applications. But I think that's fascinating that somebody is actually using that one. I think that's so great.
1: It's, uh, if anybody's interested in looking at this, it has nothing to do with 217, but mm-hmm. there was a guy in the United States. You can still find this on YouTube. I, I don't remember what the circumstances are with regards to how it started. But he had a sort of an aha moment and decided to put an iPod and earphones on onto the ears of a person who was catatonic, hadn't really spoken to anybody Mm -hmm. or done anything but sit there with his head drooped onto his chest for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, people interacted with him. You know, how are you today, darling? You know, wash his face, whatever. Through conversations with his family, they found out the guy was a big Cab Calloway fan back Mm -hmm. in the day. So they put, you know, Minnie the Moocher on an iPod stuck the earphones on him just to see what would happen. And it was holy mackerel. His eyes went bam and it popped open. Up. His head sprung up and it was as though he'd had an electric shock. This is all visual. Yeah. You can see this visually. And after a short time, he looked at the caregiver person who was across from him in the chair and said, is it okay if I sing along? Wow! And then he kind of started, you know, mumble, mumble, mumble. And then after that was over, when the earphones came off, he talked. He talked, but he talked about what what he was doing, like you know, whatever it was, thirty five or forty years ago when he was right. in the navy. Yeah. As far as he was concerned, he was in the navy. That's the memory that the song triggered. Right. But suddenly he was moving and talking, and and it lasted for hours until he went kind of back into this
0: fascinating
1: this catatonic state. Wow. It seeing that just blew my mind.
0: Music has healing properties. Yeah. That's proof right there. Wow. That is fantastic. Okay. You have got uh, an excellent list of songs here. There's a little (laughs) bit of old stuff, a little bit of new stuff. It's a great little collection. Let's start with John Mayer and in the blood.
1: That's of course, a relatively new acquisition in my repertoire. Probably it's not that new for John Mayer, but I first heard that song my son played it for me okay we were driving in a car oftentimes the way you know my, my parenting style let's say is not to interrogate You just kind of walk down the riverbank and eventually you know <laughs> people they'll start talking to you yeah. about what's on their mind <laughs> and when i first heard that song i got the feeling that my son was really talking to me through that song. Ah. It, the words are really powerful yes and i think you know they're They're really evocative of that kind of striving for identity that a lot of people who are, you know, mid-teens to early 20s struggle with. Mm -hmm. And also it deals with issues like the century you get from your family or sometimes the feeling that, you know, because you get criticized a lot sometimes by your family. And and there's one particular line that stuck with me uh, in the first verse. And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Mm -hmm. And the big line is always, will it wash out in the water? or Is it always in the blood? It's really a terrific song. Yeah. I mean, I I like John Mayer's stuff. always have. He's a brilliant guitar player. You know, I wish to God I was the guy that had written Your Body is a Wonderland. I'd buy Toronto. Yeah, no kidding. But, uh. That's my favorite song of all of the ones. And it's unlike anything he, else he ever did. It's yeah. a straight ballad, you know, a four-beat ballad. I think he was going through something when he wrote it.
0: Well, he – I was reading a little bit about this. He um, was asked because it's descriptive of family, seemingly. And, and and somebody from NPR asked him, you know, is this about your family? And he said, no, you know, it's it's about me kind of turning it on myself and doing some self-reflection. Because he, at that time, I think, was going through – Uh, what he called he was a recovering ego addict because he had kind of a bad attitude. And, you know, I was, I was a fan of his, I love the way he plays guitar and he's a great musician, great singer, but the only thing I didn't like about him was that ego. You don't know what's true and what's not, but there was a lot of talk about it. And so lately he's been, uh,
1: I understand that transition because, you know, I still run into people occasionally that, I knew in my twenties that still don't like me. <laughs> <laughs> really? For that reason? Well, you know, when you're young, like well, when yeah. you're in your twenties, you know, whether you're a hockey player or whatever you do, you know, you, you can't really move ahead and forge ahead if you don't have a little bit of like cocky self-assurance yeah. about you. Definitely. And sometimes it rubs people the wrong way that don't have that. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: It's understandable. But uh, you know, this song, it, it mines a pretty deep. Well, I mean, it, how much of my father am i destined to become i mean that's something like i think every man who has you know looked at his as father as a as a negative role model as mm-hmm. well as a positive one the the era my father grew up in is very very different from the one that i grew up in Certainly. and my style of being a father is very much informed by what his style of being a father was and and not doing some of the things that he yes. did yeah so it's, you know, I, I really like the song for all of those reasons.
0: So now I have to ask you, so what was the outcome of this sharing of the song between you and your son?
1: Uh, Well, it, it's ongoing. I mean, I've always had a very collegial added, uh, kind of relationship with mm-hmm. my son. He's 27 years old now. He's a really responsible guy. He's got a great job. He keeps the Q400s running for Porter Airlines. He's an ah. aircraft maintenance engineer cool. and really accomplished at what he does. Um, But we've always had a really I've never had the feeling that he would have any trouble talking to me about anything that's, you know, on his mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this for the sake of not embarrassing him publicly, I wouldn't go any deeper (laughs) in it than that. You know, we've had a lot of real pretty, really, you know, solid kind of moments where, you know, sometimes I felt like more of an older brother than a father. Mm -hmm. But the trick is listening, listening, you know, it's. You know, I think the reason that he chose that song to play for me in the car that day was because it had resonated with him in some way. Definitely. You know, there, uh, there's a bit of a, you know, fr- from the maternal side of our family, like from my wife's mother, there's a strongly critical vein about men in general that kind of runs through.
0: it. Okay. And, uh,
1: you know, I th- I think there was a little bit of that expression there.
0: Ah, interesting.
1: It's not terribly destructive. It's... And it's not that uncommon uh, among many of the women out there that you know there's sort of a feeling that men, if left to their own devices, will turn out to be louts and thugs (laughs) and potential criminals unless they have a firm hand on the path of righteousness. You know.
0: All right, your next song, Tony Joe White and uh, Poke Salad Annie. This is uh, this is year I was born, 1969. Tony
1: Joe White, like you know, is is one of my heroes, and that song in particular is just one of the best swamp rock songs ever written. Mm-hmm. I was also very very heavily influenced by Tony Joe White. Oh, really? Well, he's a great rack harmonica player. Not too many people know that. I didn't know that. Um, he's uh, also the guy who wrote "Rainy Night in Georgia." Not didn't too many know people that. know that. No. Nope. Uh, which was a huge hit for other artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tony Joe White was really kind of the progenitor of swamp rock. You know, you hear a lot about Creedence Clearwater blah. Well, that's where they got it. Mm. And Tony Joe couldn't find big acceptance so much in the United States, so he went to he went to Europe, okay. And cut, you know, kind of cut his teeth there, and then got lucky, and that was his big hit record, his first hit record. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I was heavily influenced by by that music and by him because it led to me writing stuff like. Uh, honky red really you know which had when i first recorded it kind of had a swamp rocky sort of beat yeah and uh
0: and some attitude i was just listening to that this morning oh yeah yeah
1: yeah it was well you know that song keeps going on like the energizer bunny i mean it got recorded by a number of people got recorded by whale and jennings but never released because the record company wouldn't allow blasphemy goddamn um but now it's, it's on record by an American rock band called Widespread Panic, who've made it into a, you know, like 18 minute Grateful no Dead versus Almond Brothers rock jam. It's kind of. <laughs> yeah lots of guitar wheedling and stuff. It's, it's wow, amazing. That's great. Yeah, they well they're a stadium band so every time it gets to that line that the record company wouldn't let Waylon Jennings sing, yeah. like you know 20,000 odd people will all stand up and throw their hands in the air and say it. <laughs> ah, that's great. You know, it's like it's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> but you know Tony Joe, it's he's like you know when I heard him play rack harmonica there was like several uh, There's four players that really influenced me like in that on that instrument mm-hmm. him john hammond jr sonny terry obviously okay. and uh and paul butterfield mm-hmm. so that's you know as the making the harmonica into a solo instrument that works with the guitar not just blatting away at it mm. as so many people do including you know with respect bob dylan i mean he's yeah. a, he just blats away on it and You know, sometimes the notes work, sometimes the notes don't work. But I look at it as a solo instrument when I'm playing it.
0: Yeah, this is uh, Elvis did this tune, didn't
1: he? Pokes Alan any? Yeah, I don't recollect. I think he did. I don't. Well, he might have. I mean, he did a lot of. uh, He did. He did. He mined a lot of different writers.
0: I know that, but I don't remember him recording this. That doesn't mean he didn't, mind you. I think he did. It wasn't as funky as the as this version.
1: Well, the horn section on "Pokes Atlanta, and he's dynamite. It's just a great horn section. and
0: yeah.
1: it and it's it's really a well-produced kind of really southern-sounding record. Mm-hmm. It's tight. Yeah, and you know, as a record, one of the things I love about it is it st- it still sounds as fresh as it did the day it was made because it doesn't have a lot of stupid studio snore on it.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: the '70s were a horrible period for recording. Generally speaking, really? the eighties were worse. I was yeah. going to
0: say the eighties were really yeah, bad. Yeah, but... because
1: you know you get like everything in the rack would go on the oh, record uh, yeah. basically. You know, you get digital delay, yeah. and sweep, and gack. and
0: With reverb on everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I
1: I listened to records that I made in the eighties and just I want to shoot myself. Right, I know.
0: <laughs> but how could you have known? That's the thing. Yeah, uh, you don't. I would ask you that. So as a as a you started in I want to say seventy one, right? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So going into the 80s, what was that like? You think about so many bands, and I think about, you know, people like Alice Cooper, Heart, Cheap Trick, all those 70s, you know, rockish bands. But what was it like to go into the 80s and have, you know, all of the the reverb and the big hair and all of the the, the excess as an artist?
1: It was uh, um like a transition time for pe- people like myself. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, because a very abrupt change happened in the popular music world. Right. You know, for one, to really oversimplify it, it was kind of the end of the era of the singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you didn't have Jackson Brown, James Taylor, or me. Yeah. You had The Clash. Yeah. You know, it was like the another British invasion. Yeah. And suddenly, like, everybody was into, what do they call it at the time? New wave, yes. I think they called it. New romanticism. And of course, then punk was rearing its ugly head. there was you know the Ramones coming out of new York there was c b j b s there was all that stuff and yep. and suddenly that was now, and we were past but you know i i my observation is that you know for a while, I kind of chafed against it, I think because i I mean I like good songs mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and that you know, doesn't mean that they weren't being produced and that they're not being produced now, but um, you know, when I would hear a writer like a Loudon Wainwright III the third or when I would hear the quality of a writer like like a John Prine, for instance. Mm. that's literature yes. put, put to music. I mean, they're they're great writers. Yeah. And the idea that people like that couldn't, you know, find a, a larger audience, or, you know, again, I was soldiering pretty hard myself. It was also for me this is kind of a long winded way of putting it, I'll try to keep it short, but you know, one of the reasons that guys like me or Bruce Coburn rose up uh, was because we came along at the advent of a particular era in technology when FM radio came online. Right. You know, all the big broadcasters bought FM frequencies, but all the money's in AM radio. That's where the advertising <laughs> is. So we just, we'll just buy these. We don't know what to do with them, but what the heck. So they put some, you know, guy like Reiner Schwartz, you know, to sit up all night and, you know, smoke reefer and spin records for insomniac college students who were cramming for exams. Right. So as a result, these guys would play whatever they wanted to. They played it all night and all day. They played whole that. sides of records. Yeah. And if they liked, you know, Bruce Coburn's new record, then they'd go. Here's the new Bruce Coburn record. They'd play the whole thing, <sighs> and they'd play it back to back with, you know, the new I don't know Jethro Tull record yeah. or Pentangle or whoever happened to be coming up. And the really interesting effect was that Canadian audiences, in particular didn't draw the line between the music that was coming out of great britain or the united states or canada because that wasn't stressed Mm. it was an equal playing field yeah so suddenly you know guys like bruce coburn were going out playing university concerts Mm -hmm. just like you know just like real stars (laughs) so um that era that that was really you know there was a kind of a nascent nationalism
0: Mm -hmm. i
1: think behind it like a sort of a cultural element of revolution. And there really wasn't much of a line between, you know, Quebec and the and rock, you know, R.O.C. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I was hanging out with guys like Robert Charlebois. Okay. And we saw each other as basically doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, we had nice loud bands and fuzzy hair and went out and adopted a posture of rebellion. Yeah. But I think what what dismayed me as we moved towards the end of the 80s into the 80s and, and towards the end of the 80s was watching music develop silos again mm-hmm. uh, you know it it's like it started to become tribal you know i i love country music i mean it has to be country music it can't be like some kind of watered down version of california rock <laughs> but you know i i love claude debussy i love jazz i yep. love all kinds of different music but like it's Nowadays, it's like if you love jazz, you can't possibly like classical music. You know, you're in a tribe like your politics or something. You know, that's sort of an element of of music marketing As a I don't I don't like that kind of division. I I really like eclectic and I like people to be able to hear and appreciate a lot of different kinds of things.
0: I think that slotting and that factioning, you know, came to be because people wanted to make money. So they said, you know, this is what hard rock is. And it is not this or this or this because these things are different. And if you want to buy those, so, you know. How many kinds of metal are there? (laughs) Well, it gets silly, (laughs) right? It just gets silly.
1: Yeah. Thrash metal, death metal, whatever. Yeah. And then there was grunge. What the hell is that? You wear a plaid shirt and, you know, and then you sing the verses really soft. and Then you you play the choruses really loud. (laughs) That's what grunge, I don't know. I have no idea what it is.
0: <laughs> it was like an overcorrection, though, to the silliness of, of hair metal, basically, is yeah. what it is. Same way that punk was to stadium rock. So,
1: interestingly enough, what's evolved out of all of that kind of exclusivity and siloing in in marketing and perception is this the evolution uh, the evolution of this thing that I, I coined in my own name for it. I call it the dark music business. Hmm. There's the world of Drake and Taylor Swift and, you know, and all of that, which I don't even get. I have no idea how any of that works, (laughs) you know, (laughs) zero idea. And I care even less, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I do care about is that somehow people who become enormously successful in that world and, you know, make shopping bags full of money choose to spend it on like a Bugatti Veyron rather than like spending it, like helping somebody in Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think if you're going to make a lot of money, you should do something with it Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, wanking on a lot of bling, but that's me. Whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. the dark music business is all of the stuff that's really of great quality. That's actually out there and it's available and it's in the festival circuits and it's, you know, guys like John Prine are still touring. Yes. And, you know, James Taylor has had enormous resurgence. He's he's like a stadium act at this point if he wants to be. Yeah. If you saw the James Taylor Carol King tour where they uh, recreated the kind of thing they did at the Troubadour on stage. Oh, no. Like no. It was
0: packed. Wow.
1: Um, and it's really good. mm mm-hmm. so, I mean, that's not exactly the dark music business because, you know, it's commercially huge. But there's a lot of, you know, great jazz, great everything out there. All you got to do is look for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So there I'm blathering. Now I'm on my soapbox.
0: No. Sorry about that. That's, that's what this is about. Uh, next song, Ray Charles, Come Rain and Come Shine. Come Rain and Come Shine. This is an old 40s tune.
1: Ray Charles is really uh, special to me. Like he's, you know, he's got, he's got like more soul in his little finger <laughs> than any 400 other singers I have ever heard. He was the guy that really took... And took a lot of flack for it, by the way. Gospel music and made it secular. Mm. I mean, other people did take flack for that. Mm -hmm. But Ray, I think, really did take more than most. The thing I love about the record of Come Rain or Come Shine is, first of all, I love the song. It is, it's almost a perfect song. Mm. It, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. That is just, it's, it's not complex. it's a beautiful thought it's beautifully said it's beautifully presented it's Mm -hmm. beautifully sung and every time i hear it it just makes me ball my eyes out (laughs) and at the end of that record you know ray hits a note like a gliss it's just spectacular it's so perfect his playing is unbelievable and Interestingly enough, in the production of that particular, they chose a really square, very white background vocal section. I think it's the Anita Kerr singers, actually. Mm -hmm. And they're so white bread. They're so Anita Kerr singers that they make Ray sound like twice as soulful singing on top of that. Uh It's just a, it's a really interesting juxtaposition of things. It's not like, it is not a Baptist gospel sound at all. They could be singing behind Pat Boone. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a number of reasons I really love it. But, you know, one in particular is a memory that I have. Mm. You know, back when I was still a young Turk, but bordering on fab. Okay. The the Columbia Records people, uh, I was playing in Vancouver got passes for myself and and my manager to go into a small club in vancouver called the cavern club okay. where ray just happened to be rehearsing for a tour mm. in the final stages of rehearsal ray charles 18 piece horn section and the ray wow full band oh maybe 200 people in the in the audience wow and just he just blew the doors out of the place for two hours. I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Yeah. it was. It's still one of the two greatest shows I have ever seen in my wow. life. And I love Ray Charles.
0: That's great. We're going to go back even further now with your next tune. It's Chet Baker and the instrumental Little Girl Blue, the instrumental version of it.
1: Chet Baker is very special, again, to me. I mean, I've never met the man, obviously. But there's a certain grace... Great players have a certain, I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's a it's a lyrical grace, it's a spirituality in their playing. It's more than just timing. The two greatest flugelhorn players in the world as far as I'm concerned are Guido Basso and Chet Baker. Though that's the two guys. And if you go to, you know, to Toronto and say Guido Basso, everybody goes, "Oh yeah, him. He used to play at Castle George and he did all the commercials. Yeah, big deal." <laughs> but you go to LA and you go Guido Basso, you go, "Oh my god." He's God. (laughs) You know, Chet Baker has that terrible storied career and recovering after getting his teeth knocked out and, you know, all of that junky stuff, which seemed to be the prerequisite for being a great jazz player, but everybody (laughs) knows that's not true. But in this one particular piece, it's it's a really beautiful instrumental interpretation of what I consider to be a fairly average song. You know, the lyrics to Little Girl Blue are like, who cares? They're really not that great. Mm -hmm. But he takes that melody and he does something with it that is so bittersweet and so gracious, so tonally perfect, so simple Mm -hmm. and so intelligently presented that, you know, he could be, you know, like in, in that old poem of Bob Dylan's. He could be an angel sitting up on a fire escape on a New York morning playing that song. And I have actually chosen that piece. You know, when I kick the bucket, Little Girl Blue instrumental Chet Baker is the processional music for my my
0: funeral. Wow. That's what they're going to play. That's great. I like that. Next is Blossom Deary, (laughs) Now at Last blossom
1: deary is you know again she is so quirky you know so unusual she has that kind of little breathy weird voice and that Mm -hmm. wonderful slightly fractured way of singing in french she's also like a monster of a studio piano player i mean Mm -hmm. she was a serious new york session player but she did these gigs at a club in new york all the time just had a little trio and she'd go in there and just the jam-packed play she'd just knock everybody out she was funny she had a great repertoire she could do amazing things with a standard but there was also a really really deep understanding of the nuances of human emotion in the way that she packed a song now at last it was written by uh ed ames brother whose first name i forget you know but remember the ames brothers well the, yes the guy who wasn't ed wrote wrote this song and a, a lot of people have attempted it but it, it's really hard to get a good read on it. Mm. Blossom Dearie just killed it. She just nailed it. I've never heard it better. One day, Mark Jordan and I were driving down the spine of Beast on the Coquihalla Highway. Beautiful sunny day. You can see for a million miles. The mountains are gorgeous. And I'm in the right seat of the, of the card okay. curating the musical experiences. So I'm picking songs and playing them, picking songs and playing them. You know, I pick up that Blossom Deary song now at last the song's going and it's going and every time I hear it it chokes me up when it gets to that line in the song that goes uh, when spring is cold where do robins go what makes winters lonely now at last I know (laughs) so I I look over (laughs) and Mark's got both his hands in the wheel and he's just bawling his eyes out (laughs) so it's a pretty good song And it's a wonderful delivery.
0: Yeah. Okay, Bob Dylan is next. A hard rain is going to fall. Freewheeling.
1: (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I I was profoundly affected by hearing uh, Dylan on the radio for the first time. There used to be a folk show that played late at night in Toronto, the Randy Ferris show. Mm, Okay. And Randy Ferris played everything. Library of Congress, Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Sonny and Brownie, you name it, he played it. And one night I'm in bed, you know, almost asleep and on, on comes this like harmonica and guitar thing. And, uh, it was from his second album, actually Randy Ferris played, don't think twice it's all right. Oh. And when that so. harmonica solo hit just the sound of the guitar and the harmonica, cause it was the like, it was the freight train that was going by my house where you hear the Doppler effect of yeah, and, and the whistle drops. It was that sound. It was the that thing that draws you out of your boots and you know makes you restless about stuff mm-hmm. it wasn't the song so much it was the sound so i you know stole money from my brother's pants and you know, did everything <laughs> that i could possibly do and uh, and i got a ticket for uh his first concert at massey hall and by this point like i knew you know of, of all these protest songs because it was the middle of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. so you were getting like the lonesome death of hattie carroll and you know blowing in the wind which probably is the greatest civil rights song ever written i mean it's it's an unbelievably good song i don't care what anybody says but hard rains are going to fall is is an amazing anti-war song it's just it it's terrifying i mean it's it's a very thinly disguised metaphor for nuclear missiles coming down and blowing up the
0: world yeah
1: recently having spent 2 weeks in vietnam And soaking up some of the results of, you know, first of all, watching a country rebuild itself after 50 years of hard rain falling in those days in a really meaningful way. I mean, more hard rain got dropped in Vietnam than got dropped in all of Germany in World War II. Mm -hmm. You know, it it got back into the fore uh, of my brain, I guess, that all those missiles, all that stuff, it's still there. And the world is getting far more dangerous in terms of the potential for nuclear war than it's been since the Cold War. I agree. So this particular song, it's, re- it's a very powerful, and it's in an old folk form, you know, mother-son, mother-call-son, mother-call-son. Yeah. It's a very old kind of format. And I think, you know, because of my British, Scottish, Celtic roots, it's a resonant form as well as being a resonant piece of poetry. But it's, it's a great song. It's a really powerful song. And by golly, it's about something, which I
0: think songs should be about <laughs> something. <laughs> awful idea. Last one, John Prine, a lyrical genius. We talked about him earlier. Paradise. When I uh, first met John,
1: I was headlining at that club I mentioned earlier, the old, the Earl of Old Town yeah, in Chicago. And John... Uh, actually, was the opening act. Oh, he had just been discovered by Chris Christofferson, and Christofferson was singing John's song, Sam Stone. Sam Stone, but, but John wow. wasn't real kind of well known. He was well known in in Chicago. He might have still been working as a mailman at that point. I'm not sure. But anyway, John was up doing his sound check, and I arrived at the club just as he started his sound check. So he's up in the microphone, and he plays like you know four or five tunes just to warm up, and it's like hello in there it's like paradise it's like sam stone it's like all i wanted to do was put my guitar in its case and (laughs) slink out the back door of the club and never be seen again because the guy i i think he was he was a savant you know i felt like salieri in that movie amadeus yeah you (laughs) you know without obviously without you know reason but I was so impressed with his ability just to – it was such, you know, so gritty and so real in his way of going after things and so unusual in the way he went at it. Like Donald and Lydia is one of the greatest songs just about alienation and loneliness and body image Mm -hmm. that I've ever heard. It's just – it's and it's fantastically sympathetic even though it uses language that would be, you know, called out now as – inappropriate yeah you know you can't even use the word fat anymore it's just <laughs> well you know unless it's an old white guy i guess i suppose you can call an old white guy fat and that's all right but paradise in particular i mean here we are you know like another aspect of the you know the world facing gloom and doom from climate change yeah and here is one of the greatest songs ecological songs i think that's ever been written and when you just check the course. You know, Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where paradise lay? Sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. That's amazing. that's
0: wonderful. When you said Sam Stone, you know, there's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes. Yeah. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Just brilliant lyricism.
1: Lines stick out of all of his really great songs too. I mean, uh, "Hello" in there, yeah. You know, we lost Davy in the Korean War and never knew what for. Doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It's like that just drips with, you know, Rust Belt resignation. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's really po- he's a powerful writer. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's why I picked that song of all songs. But I mean, you could pick any John Prine song and it would be pretty pretty up there but this one in particular is i think the best ecological song that maybe i've ever heard
0: yeah yeah i actually discovered john Prime through someone else who was playing his songs at laurentian university when i lived in dorm there there was a guy who uh, was in my year and he played acoustic guitar showed me how to play actually but played uh, hello in there and i was so fascinated by the lyrics because it's yeah. just cg and d it's simple stuff but i thought like who is this and I I heard Sam Stone, and I went after John Prine for that reason, because the lyrics were so prescient and so gritty.
1: Well, interestingly enough, like John and Steve Goodman, mm-hmm. who wrote City of New Orleans, the big hit for Oliver Guthrie, were best buddies. And, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a rat pack going for a number of years. In fact, where it got so wild and slightly incestuous that you know one of my favorite memories is sitting in a hotel room at the philadelphia folk festival and we were having one of those like a guitar pole where you know you sing you sing the great news song you've just written like and it's supposed to wow everybody and i'm sitting in a room trying to wow everybody yeah and it's like jim croce oh wow. tom waits john prine <laughs> steve goodman and Loud and Wainwright the
0: third, no, that all was in a the guitar bowl. That's incredible.
1: are you know, having a beer and playing songs.
0: Unbelievable.
1: The other really nice moment, and this is a John moment too.
0: Yeah,
1: is um in in the early days I went on Studs turkle's radio show in Chicago. Okay, Studs was a great. He wrote many books, but Working is one of his most famous. Mm-hmm. And he was an old wobbly, like you know, practically a communist, but. <laughs> Real serious socialist, wore red socks, the whole deal. But he, he was an icon in Chicago. He okay. was, and he had a regular radio show as well as being a con, columnist. So I'm on his show and I played Farmer's Song and a couple of other songs. And and out of the blue, Stud says, you know, there's only four people that have ever played music on my radio show.
0: Mm. I said, oh, that, that's nice.
1: He said, you want to know who they are? I said, yeah, sure, okay. Mr. Turkle, <laughs> sir. He said, Woody Guthrie. Bob Dylan,
0: John Prine, and you Wow, that's some good company
1: okay, that was pretty cool.
0: That's amazing. It has been a joy hosting you Murray this is thank you so much for sharing these stories and and you know your reflections in these songs i really this has been a fantastic chat. Oh, well, thank you very
1: much yeah. that's nice talking to you i I enjoyed it too.
0: I really did I mean, enjoy I know it.
1: we didn't get any popcorn here in the movie theater, but that would have made a lot
0: of crunching in the microphone. <laughs> next time, I'll have popcorn for you when you come back.
1: <laughs> okay. Right. None of that microwave stuff, though. It's bad for you. Absolutely.
0: All right. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Murray McLaughlin. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Leftover People, and All My Favorite
1: People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.